You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR, 102.7 FM. This is Plato's Cave. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Josh Nelson. Good evening to you both. Good evening. Good evening. This is a film criticism show that comes your way every Monday at 7pm. And Alexandra Heller-Nicholas is part of the team, but she won't be with us for the next few weeks. She's taking some well-deserved time off. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you to everybody who has called in over the past 10 days to subscribe to this extraordinary station we call 3RRR. And look, and a special heartfelt thank you to those who sort of directed their subscription directly to, directed directly <laughs> towards us, uh, to Plato's Cave. I mean, look, it all goes to the same place. It all goes to this wonderful station. But it's, it's lovely to know that people sort of pledge their subscription to us. And we haven't got the final figures yet, but I'm, I gather from having a casual look at some of the figures as they started to roll in, it's a huge advance in what we were doing last year. So last year we were a very new show and, and, and you know, we're a little bit more established now, and I think we've, we've built quite a nice audience. So thank you to everybody who got in touch over the past 10 days that way. Fantastic. And can still get in touch because the subscription and Radiothon is not over yet. The campaign may have ended, but you've still got until... Yeah, sort of a month from now. Yeah, yeah the yeah, 23rd of September. So a month, September, and you can yep. still subscribe, and you can still subscribe to us and get that 1,000 bonus karma points coming your way. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, 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 the Radiothon effectively is still going. I mean, the big 10-week campaign where we hit with all the bells and whistles and have the crazy delirious show, that is done, but the Radiothon is still on. So please get in touch, 93881027 during business hours to subscribe or go over to the website, rrr.org.au is a brilliant way to subscribe online. All right, back to Plato's Cave. We have been presenting over the past few weeks kind of slightly off-kilter, slightly wonderfully messy shows that are a little bit different from our normal structured programming, and we're going to continue with our messy programming <laughs> tonight. What we, look, look, last week was Radiothon. The two weeks before that were about the Melbourne International Film Festival. What we wanted to do tonight is to do sort of a mass catch-up, I suppose, and some of the other films we've been seeing over the past three or four weeks that we haven't been able to explore fully on this show. So we're just going to kind of spend the next uh, 55 minutes um, flying through some of the films that have come out since of late July onwards that we wanted to give you some commentary on. Um, and we thought we'll start off uh, all the way back to 30th of July, the, sort of the big blockbuster film of the moment. I think we, we've all decided to ignore Fantastic Four, and from what I've heard, that was a good move. The big blockbuster film of the moment is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Yes, normally trying to cast my mind back over a month is, um, is fraught with uh, danger, but this is a film that has stuck with me in, ter- in terms of particularly blockbuster cinema and action cinema. I think it's fair to say that of the action fair, the blockbuster fair that we've seen this year, Mission Impossible, or so Mission colon Impossible hyphen Rogue Nation is up there or second to only Mad Max colon Fury Road in terms of its uh, spectacle cinema. I haven't been a massive fan of the Mission Impossible films. I was I enjoyed the Brian De Palma one back in the day. I've enjoyed moments from some of the other ones, but I think this is a really strong film, easily the highlight of the, the franchise, and it's not just, I guess, the direction in this film. Christopher McQuarrie comes on board and does a really interesting job, but what struck me about this film that, that 
was so enticing, I guess, is the execution of the set pieces here and the variety of the set pieces. They are some of the most extraordinary, visceral action set pieces we've seen in not just this year, but in blockbuster cinema for quite some time, including what might be my favourite sequence in cinema up until this point this year, and that is a wonderful sequence involving the Viennese Opera House and a performance of Turandot and a series of snipers and poor... Poor Tom Cruise caught in the middle and doesn't know where to kind of aim aim the gun or who to stop. And the other star of this film, it's not really Tom Cruise at all. For me, it's Rebecca Ferguson. She's mm. a she does a remarkable job as a sort of a, a a double agent with a sort of a femme fatale esque quality to her. Uh, look, yeah, I love this film as well. I was a big fan of the last two Mission Impossible films as well, especially the last one that Brad Bird directed. But um, look, this is really. I mean, it's almost a pity this came out the same year as Mad Max Fury Road because it's also a really intelligent engagement action film with an amazing female lead who, who kind of is actually the star of the film more so than the, the character you associate up until now as being the star of the film and, and both films used in-camera stunt work, it's sort of, you know they, they, these are both films that have gone back to these more practical effects and you really can feel the difference, you know the car chases have a real sense of speed there's, a, there's an underwater sequence that's actually shot as a continuous take where Cruz and the other actors learned to do intense controlled breathing to execute these extraordinary sequences and yeah that that opera house uh, fight scene is great especially since the film plays on this idea of covert operations sort of behind the scenes that the public can't see and, and they're literally having these fight sequences in the wings of a show trying to keep what they're doing um secret from the audience Sorry, Thomas, I was just going to say, I think a lot of people referred to this film and said it had a Hitchcockian quality, and that's the scene that I think they're perhaps referring to. Yeah, absolutely. It is this wonderful sense of the building of suspense. And so what was the name of the actor who played the, the British double agent? Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. She's a Swedish actress. Yeah, I, she wasn't on my radar until now. And actually, she's sort of older than, than actors normally entering Hollywood playing these roles, but it's a really strong role. She has so much agency. She's the most interesting character, and it's sort of great to see a character like her on screen who isn't a sex object she isn't there to be objectified but my god is she sexy like it sort of proves to us that you can have kind of yeah sort of sense of desire and eroticism with these characters without kind of feeling like they're being exploitive or there to be perved at i mean she holds her own and has this incredible chemistry and her and Cruz work together really really well and there isn't the kind of cliched corny romantic coupling either instead you just get this wonderful erst as in unresolved sexual tension i mean nice. they're really great together on screen and look this is why I think the, the Bond franchise needs to take a page out of the Mission Impossible franchise in terms of not only the uh, representation of, of women, or at least this female character and, and what she represents and how her character is portrayed, but also in terms of that, in, that really um, canny balance of tongue-in-cheek humour without pushing it into self-parody. I mean, Simon Pegg is here. He gives the sort of a, a, you know, a decent comic relief, but it's not mocking itself. It doesn't quite go into sort of Kingsman territory, but it still has a, a lovely balance. And I think that that earnestness about this film while having an, an awareness of yes we understand this is a bit ridiculous is you know is part of the charm of this film yeah that they've nailed it where the recent bond films haven't the bond films feel they don't know what they want to be this tough gritty reimagining or this kind of throwback to roger moore style cabness where these mission impossible films just seem to walk that tightrope perfectly um 
yeah, I'm glad to hear you liked it because I look. It inspired me to write poetry about Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's how much I uh, enjoyed the latest Mission Impossible film. Hey, I also went to check out uh, a French film called Far From Men, which was also released back in late July on the 30th. I just want to quickly comment on really intriguing uh, drama based very loosely on a short story by um, Albert Camus, a film called The Guest. Um, stars Viggo Mortensen and a guy called Reda Keteb, who was the star of Jacques Audiard's The Prophet. Oh. I'm, I'm butchering my French names, of course. But curious films set during the Algerian War, 1954. So the setup is Mortensen is Adaru. He's his ex-French army soldier who's now a school teacher teaching the, the, the local um, Algerian kids. He's uh, you know a, a good man, and he's given the task of taking an accused murderer across country for trial. He's really reluctant to do this, but you know the the colonial forces and, and, and the threat of the Algerian rebels means that he's kind of forced into this position and this Algerian man is, is the guy that Reta Kadab plays and there's this constant threat of violence around them shot against these remarkable Algerian landscapes that kind of evoke the John Ford John Ford Western. You've got this you know, interesting dynamic between the men where they very quickly form this deep mutual respect and in fact I think the problem with this film is they're kind of too good from the word from, from the very beginning. I mean, Mortison's character, it's like a combination of Gary Cooper from High Noon with Atticus Finch. I mean, he's such a good man, and the film really makes a point of showing how reluctant he is to kill, and when he has to kill someone in self-defence, he's so furious at at the world. So, look, it's a really weird kind of mash-up of 310 to humour. That's exactly the film I was just about to ask you. For. Yeah, it's kind of got that vibe. Even the last detail, the idea of this man escorting another man to trial, being quite sympathetic towards him. There's even a scene where they visit a brothel so the guy can kind of yeah I won't go into how problematic that is but you've kind of got that in this film as well and even the defiant ones you know these two men of a different race kind of they're not literally shackled together in this film like they were in the defiant ones but you've got some of that dynamic except it's not antagonistic they very quickly become best friends um this is a good film that never kind of reaches that peak that you're hoping for it kind of never has that great dramatic moment but i would nevertheless recommend people go to see it on the big screen if you can because it does look stunning and you know it is quite exciting seeing algeria given the john ford-esque treatment is it still screening is it yeah still it's still I, I should say actually all the films that we're going to talk about tonight with the exception of the next one um are, are screening still in in cinemas right now so they're all still very much uh, films you can go along to see. But the next film we're going to comment on, it's not, it didn't even get a cinema release. And this was one that you brought to our attention, Josh, and I'm really glad you did. It's a film that's had a lot of interest and buzz around the world, and it's kind of gone straight to DVD and Blu ray here in Australia. It got released mid July. This is a, a very curious film called Maggie. Yeah, look, I, I had heard buzz about this film towards the end of last year because Maggie was going to premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, it got pulled for some reason and ended up premiering at, I think, Tribeca earlier this year or later last year, from what I understand. I think, yeah, I'm not too sure. It may have been Tribeca this year, I think. Right, yeah, that would make more sense. And look, this is an interesting film for a number of reasons. I guess, from my own sort of two cents, I'm a big fan of Schwarzenegger. The buzz around this film was, this is a role where he pulls off something impressive 
dramatically and it's a change of pace now the question begs to be asked then or it's worth picking up on why did this film go straight to dvd and blu-ray without so much as a a whimper and i think the problem is if i was to describe this film as a post-apocalyptic drama involving zombies with arnold schwarzenegger you're already into the realm of expecting something like expendables mixed with a, a horror film and the problem is it's not that type of film at all in fact and I, I know this is a, a cardinal sin of film criticism alongside describing something as having a Lynchian quality. <laughs> I seriously think this film has a Terence Malick quality, but I actually think this film feels like a, a Terence Malick-style drama set in a George Romero universe because this film is low-key. This film is, uh, in terms of the tone of the film, it's, it's very sort of downbeat. It's set in a rural area. Schwarzenegger plays a farmer who rescues his daughter or she's released into his custody she's been bitten by a zombie and she's only got a few weeks left before he's supposed to take her to quarantine and i think if you looked at this film not as a zombie film but as a film that is about a terminal illness about a parent whose child has been diagnosed with a terminal illness and she's only got a few weeks left to live and he has to deal with the you know the impending death i think you actually get a stronger sense of what this film is actually attempting to do i think the zombie stuff is there more as window dressing and the, and the central drama i think is really compelling in a beautiful sort of style look it's not a perfect film i have issues with elements and the ending for me is a real letdown but i i really i would like people to, who i think would be the audience for this film to find it because I don't think it's discovered that audience just yet. Yeah, I was actually very impressed by Arnie's turn in this. It's uh, quite understated. Um, it's, uh, there's none of that sort of uh, nod and a wink to camera, no lines. Um, it's uh, he carries a lot of his uh, a lot of weight in his his body, the weight of his burden of. Uh, uh, a relationship, um, two relationships under strain, one with his dying daughter and the other with his, um, we, we guess it's the second wife. We know that the, the mother of the daughter is, has gone some years back. Um, and so we, we sense that the, the this triangular relationship is going to fill many strains because perhaps the uh, Arnie's um, uh, partner now, played by Joey Lee Richardson, isn't going to feel somehow as strongly for the daughter and... Will that come to a head? And meanwhile, there's all these other uh, folk, terrified country folk, including the police, who seem to be more scared than anybody who want to get in there and and put an end to uh, this situation sooner than later. And it does play all of this out in such a a minor key and and very, very beautifully, though... uh, I struggle a little with that blue-orange palette that uh, is so um, has become pretty ubiquitous these last um, ten or more years. I think ever since our brother were out there and people discovered digital colour grading, we, we lose a lot of reds and greens and end up with lots of orangey yellows and, and sort of turquoise, but very muted colours. And it's not just because I think the film's trying to conjure up an autumnal atmosphere suggestive of um, here the the end of a life approaching but also it's just it's just something that irritates irritates me i think the matrix helped bring this on and countless films to just thinking for if you want to spell out post-apocalyptic uh life you just uh, wash out all of the colors much as this film has that said it is tremendously atmospheric the score is underplayed which wasn't expected at my end at least it's yeah it's all strings and 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 minor key um laments but it's it's really tremendously effective and i get what you're saying josh about the terence malickiness of it it does play in that sort of uh, register and uh yeah it's 
frankly pretty impressed. I really liked it too. It's a real curiosity of, of a film. Um, it reminded me a little bit, well, not reminded me, but in a similar way to Monster. Remember that? Um, or was it Monsters? The... Uh, the English-made film about the the two people journeying through yeah, the all. forbidden zone, monsters, yep. yeah, and and that was sort of had the trappings of a science fiction alien invasion film, but it was actually a very small film about this relationship dynamic. And you've got a similar thing here. It's you've got the trappings of the the, the zombie genre, but it's really it's a film about a man coming to terms with the fact that his daughter is dying, and the daughter being aware that she's not going to be on, you know, not going to be alive much longer. And and this kind of you know teenager slowly dying is a quite in fashion at the moment, you know, but it's often told from the point of view of another teenager, another young person who's in love with the person who's dying. There's, there's lots of sort of fairly films that I, I often find a little bit twee and saccharine. Actually, I'm not a fan of some of these teen death films that are coming out. But Think, um, things like what Fault in the Stars, Fault in the Stars, and even oh, Me, Me Earl, and The Dying Girl, which we're going to do a giveaway for that later on the show. Most people. Did really like this film, but I wasn't a fan at all. Um, yeah, look, it's in fashion, and so it's, it's interesting to see this film from the point of view of, of the the parent done in such an unusual way. I mean, the zombie thing has never been more of a metaphor than ever. I think in this film yeah. for for sort of disease, and I like the fact it's a community that's adapted to this kind of zombie apocalypse, and they're now, now just trying to get on with the harsh realities of, of life. Yeah, look, I think this is a really strong film. I mean, it's a directorial debut. The director Henry Hobson has only has predominantly worked. As as a, an opening and closing credits director. So, I mean, he comes from a sort of a design perspective, so it seems like an unusual leap to take from that straight to, to feature film directing. Schwarzenegger's an executive producer, which makes sense. You know, I think he's, it's clearly he's been drawn to it for the opportunity it's afforded him in terms of his dramatic work. I think it's his copland. Like, I, I honestly yeah. think that there's an audience that would appreciate this film that that it hasn't hasn't yet discovered well, this film. This film is almost doomed to failure because it is a zombie film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger that has to that happens to be a quiet melancholic sensitive drama it's almost like no audience exists for this film unless you go in with a radically open mind which i think the three of us have done because we're film critics and that's how we approach your films but i've been surprised online by the number of people who just can't wrap their heads around the idea that a film with arnie in it could be anything but a shoot 'em up yeah there's one other film that's really reminded me of in mood and also to do with the dying teen angle and that was never let me go which has had that genre angle as well that wonderful film love that yeah and i I absolutely adored that film too i think that's a stronger film than this that said but i mean that didn't do terribly well either at the box office i believe i think that was a flop it wasn't well marketed even though it had stars galore yeah well it's weird how genre films still struggle to be taken as serious when I say genre, I mean the science fiction horror, the, the kind of word we very casually and lazily say a genre, forgetting that everything basically is a genre. That's a whole other round. I'll do another <laughs> show. But, I um, mean, yeah, things like science fiction and horror, people do struggle to accept that these could be used to tell human dramas. Well, I think if um, if that had been released now, because it was Kerry Mulligan, Kira Knightley and... Andrew Garfield. Andrew yeah. Garfield. If that was released now, mm-hmm. I mean, all three of those have sort of gone on in, well, maybe not so much Kira, but leaps and bounds for certainly other two. So maybe that's another film that you know has, it, has another audience waiting to be waiting to embrace it. Maggie, it's available now on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, really worth checking out. It's a, it's, a, it's a worthwhile curiosity. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. 3RRR. Three three 
we're doing a rapid overview of all the films that we we missed over the last few weeks while covering the film festival and doing Radiothon that we that we have thoughts on that we wish to share with you. We're going to turn our attention now to an Australian film that came out early August titled Last Cab to Darwin. Yeah, this is a film that I'm a big fan of. It only got released uh, two weeks ago, I think. I'm not sure it's... Again, it's a bit like Maggie. I'm not sure it's finding the audience that it quite deserves because I think it's a, a definitely a worthy film. It's a it's directed by Jeremy Sims of Last Train to Frio. Apparently he likes last type of titles. <laughs> last Transport to Location. Yes. Um, and adapted from a stage play. Actually, one of the, the most startling things about this film, it doesn't feel like it's adapted from a stage play that at all. That blew my mind when I found that out. It's yeah. an incredibly cinematic film and it riffs quite li- uh, largely on off the road trip um, type narrative. It revolves around Michael Caton, a character played by Michael Caton called Rex. He's a cab driver in Broken Hill. He discovers very early on in the film that he has a recurrence of cancer and he's diagnosed and he's given about two to three months left to live. And at the same time, he hears about the potential of a euthanasia clinic that may be opening up in Darwin, being run by a doctor played by Jackie Weaver. So, in his sort of desperation, he decides that he wants to drive from Broken Hill to Darwin to have his life ended. Um, Look, I think this is a really strong film, uh, and a lot rests on the, I think, really remarkable performance of Michael Caton, a guy who I think for a long time perhaps unfairly has been boxed in as the Daryl Kerrigan-type larrikin stereotype, and this performance is anything but. He's not the wide-eyed idealist of the castle. In this film, he is a man in decline, he's a man in decay, and the mise-en-scene and the look of this film all suggest a kind of dying relics of the past. I mean, this is a guy who listens to to 70s vinyl, the house he's living in, Broken Hills, falling apart. The world around him is is a kind of... Uh, is decaying photographs, really. And so he takes this trip out of Broken Hill and, um, you know, it's that sort of standard road trip fair. He meets some very interesting characters along the way. And perhaps most interestingly, as a, as a sort of, I guess, a subtextual level, although it's probably there at the forefront, is this film's treatment of race. And I think it has some very interesting things to say about uh, Indigenous Australia and, and the relationship between white and black Australia. Yeah, I was quite taken by this film. I, I was expecting it to be kind of dreary hard work as well, considering the subject matter, but it's not, and I think a lot of that has to do with Caton's charisma. It, this is a really strong performance. It is a long, long way away from the castle. It, it, so it's great to see him, I was about to say, kind of break out to this kind of work, but it's more return to this kind of work. I mean, he's had a long, uh, very well-regarded career. Look, the race stuff is fascinating. There are no kind of simple statements in this film about the the way white and black Australia relate to each other. It's actually quite... It's quite complex and, and, and messy, and none of the characters in this film, I think, stand for any specific point of view. They're all quite complex characters. I mean... You know the the, the the way he he talks to his his neighbour at the start of the film, and you discover quite early on, you know, he and her hook up a lot for for what seems to be casual sex, and we gather there might be something more to their relationship that's been unacknowledged. I mean, even the way he talks to her at the start of the film, you get a sense he's got a bit of old bigotry in him as well. He, he's he's a little bit condescending towards Indigenous Australians, and then he meets this other guy who he sort of takes along with him, who's very charismatic, but also quite a quite a flawed character who. You know, some of the actions of this character kind of endorses his suspicions about Indigenous Australia, um, and then other, you know, and then he sort of you know has great changes of heart as, as well in a way that's actually quite convincing. There's nothing very, there's nothing contrived about this film. 
at all. And I found that really refreshing. I mean, I must came out. I, I must admit, I came out of this film thinking I can't pin down exactly the. The, the terrain in which this film explored race, which I think was a really good thing. It, it showed us that there is, in a quite an optimistic way, it showed us that I think in Australia there is a sense that people possibly want stuff to work, stuff as in they, they want to see white and black Australia work together, and yet there are these very deep um, uh, uh, barriers and, and problems to that, and a lot of that is even if it's not overt racism, it's sort of old attitudes that that linger and come to the surface when when least wanted. And I think the film kind of portrays that mess that messiness in a way that's really refreshing and truthful. Yeah, the thing that struck me is I think it's a film that's very much about racial relations without being a film about racial relations. If that if that makes sense, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think this really is a film about the euthanasia debate, but I think the the way in which Sims weaves and the, um, the co-script writer Reg Cribb weave in this racial relations is, is quite subtle at times and that moment you mentioned or alluded to in terms of the neighbour played um, I think the indigenous actors in this are really great, uh, Ningali Lawford Wolf who plays Polly, there's a scene where they're holding hands during their sort of morning ritual of coffee and the next door neighbour, a white neighbour walks out with her rubbish bin and suddenly he, he lets go of her hands, that sense of the shame, nothing more of that moment needs to be said because it's, it speaks so much and we get the same thing with the young younger guy who comes on board, played by Mark Cole-Smith, who I think is a really, really star presence and, and so charismatic mm. in this film. And again, the way in which it sort of weaves in aspects of of the, the tension and the um, the bias and the bigotry and that, all that stuff that's kind of just bubbling under the surface, in the same way that you get with Caton and, and his reluctance to acknowledge the other people in his life that have sort of forced him or, or have driven him to Darwin to potentially end his own life. I think this is a, and that's a beautiful looking film too I think the, the cinematography in this is quite startling the way it captures you know central Australia yeah it's an extremely cinematic film and it, it, it blows my mind that it began as a stage show because this feels like it was made with only cinema in mind that's Last Cab to Darwin now from a film that has uh, fairly complex issues that show us there's no simple way of looking at the way people relate to each other to Trainwreck, which is a Judd Apatow film. I am on record as saying I'm a fan of Judd Apatow's, especially his earlier films, but he, he likes things pretty cut and dried and sort of straight down the middle. This one has Amy Schumer. Oh, I think many people know the deal behind this film already. She stars in this film. She wrote it. A lot of the material in the film is from her own life. She basically plays the kind of persona Seth Rogen played in Knocked Up, or even Steve Carell played in The 40-Year-Old Virgin as the sort of... The infantile party animal type who, and because Apatow's films I think essentially have a kind of conservative social cohesion message, she you know, discovers that she wants more out of life and she wants, she discovers somebody who she could have a stable relationship with, but because of her her messy past that's quite tricky. Um, I found this film perfectly enjoyable. I didn't get many huge laughs out of it. I was actually surprised at how touching some of the stuff is with um, Amy Schumer's character, with the with the characters, uh, with her sister, the characters, uh, her family. So with her sister and her father, 
that took me by surprise actually how kind of I suppose mature and, and sweet and, and melancholic some of those some of those scenes were in terms of the big laughs though I hate to say this but the laughs mainly belong to Bill Hader's character with um, the basketball player what's his name LeBron James yeah their riffing is is fantastic and you know Apatow likes to do the the impro thing and sometimes it wears out its welcome but with those two it really it really zings I don't think this is a comedy and I think that's what's turned some people against this film is they've gone in expecting constant belly aching laughs in the style of some of the other comedies we've had released recently um, and and they haven't got it and I think it's rubbed them the wrong way and I think that's really sad because I think this is a really honest for the most part drama and that's what I find appealing in Apatow's films and why I've been a bit of a you could say an Apatow apologist up until now they're the only film I haven't seen of his is uh, This Is 40 which I heard sort of almost which is awful really I mean that's the awful. one that yeah, yeah I don't know many people who like that film but I was one of the few who actually liked Oh wow! There's a Seth Rogen film I liked, Funny People, <laughs> because it's not particularly funny. I found it yeah. a really engrossing character character film, um, and this is what won me over with this. And, and Schumer, like Bill Hader, like or particularly like Bill Hader in the Skeleton Twins, proves herself not just very adept at comic timing, but a really impressive dramatic performance. And the moments that this film feels genuine and honest were the bits that won me over. And I think that's that's a trademark of Apatow. It's comedy isn't there for set pieces and, and kind of sight gags. It's about anchoring the narrative in genuine, believable and honest characters and identifiable situations, which which this film really does with one glaring exception, and this is what, I guess, the only sort of lingering disappointment I had about Trainwreck and the final scene. I think this film is an anti-rom-com or it tries to steer away from rom-com as much as possible and in the end sort of falls back on fairly predictable and, and sadly over-the-top rom-com terrain. Yeah, it's sort of wrapped up very neatly and very, very quickly. I, I, I still enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed this f- film a lot. I think it's better than the last lot of Apatow films, but I, I, I do miss his, his earlier work to a degree. But I think you, you're right. It, it's a drama with a lot of funny content as opposed to the other way around. Uh, more of a conventional drama, or, or is it, is the French film Girlhood, which has also been released uh, recently on the 13th of August. Girlhood came out. This is a, a French drama by Celine Sciamma, who I think I'm pronouncing that probably incorrectly. Let's face it, it's me. Her previous <laughs> film was Tomboy, a film released in 2011, which I had an enormous amount of time for, a film I liked a lot. Um, we had quite a debate on it on this show <laughs> back in the day from memory. But, Cerise, you've seen Girlhood? I have. I've also seen her film before then, too, Water Lilies, from about 2007 yeah. or so, which I thought was very strong as well. And, uh, and across all of these three films, she's taken a look at, uh, well, girls of different uh, class, um, a different age, and here very particularly race. Um, so a lot of this concerns life, a fairly... Uh, strained life in the north of Paris in the rather unglamorous but still livable uh, housing commission flats, so the equivalents of uh, thereof over there. Um, and in particular, hones in on a particular, well, one, one girl, but who becomes part of a gang, you could say. And I think actually the French title of this film, uh, Bon de Fil, is actually more or less translates to gang of girls or girl gang. Uh, which is really what the film's about. It's not really about girlhood. It's not meant to be uh, sort of a Richard Linklater-esque um, uh, journey across... God, how many years did that film cover in the life of one middle-class white boy? <laughs> Over three hours. Yeah. Well, look, it's a great <laughs> film, so don't get me wrong. Don't mean to be too glib here right now. And uh, this film is anything but glib. 
It's, uh, it's, it's a really accomplished piece of work for the most part. She has a, a tremendous eye for composition and uh, for what is largely unglamorous terrain, and, and there's very little of the, the storied picture book Paris here, except uh, ironically and quite symbolically um, in the form of miniatures in, in a mini-golf park where the girls at some point go out and play mini-golf, and there's a little mini Eiffel Tower there. It's uh, a really interesting look at race from a middle-class white female filmmaker uh, who's given us an almost exclusively black female uh, teenaged cast uh, and their struggles, and one in particular, struggles just to find some agency in a world which does its utmost to suppress her longing for, to better herself. And uh, I, I found this tremendously moving. It had me on edge any number of times because of issues surrounding toxic masculinity within this community that she's a part of and in the broader community, of course. And uh, I, I think you guys had maybe some more issues with this film than I do because I actually came out of it feeling... Uh, like I'd really been transported to a, a, another time, and not another time, so, but definitely another place, another world. And never having actually been to Paris, this is still absolutely not the Paris I think that I am very likely to go to when eventually I do land there. It's very much a Paris that exists, and I remember living in Paris, you would see these kind of groups of people on the train, and I would feel slightly indignant and maybe uncomfortable because of them, and the sequences in this film kind of threw that back in my face and sort of made me check myself. So I kind of admired the film for doing that. I think it's it's great when films make you confront your own unacknowledged prejudices. Um, look, I, I did enjoy this film. It, the, it did start to lose me as it got overtly political and point-makery. I, I, I did like it as a snapshot of these of these young girls' lives, and um, uh, it starts off with an amazing shot of them playing football and being so joyous and confident and comfortable with each other. And as they splinter off to go home, they, they just increasingly look vulnerable as they're surrounded by these very predatory guys hanging out around the flats where they live. A lot to like about this film. Silly, one little thing that I think is worth mentioning here, just quickly though. Uh Chiaroscuro lighting on black faces rather than white. Very interesting. Not something we're accustomed to seeing. And I think that's one of this film's absolute assets. I'd like to see more of that in cinema. Three Triple R. You're listening to the closing minutes of Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We just heard Scenario by A Tribe Called Quest, and I play that because it's one of the many uh, 90s hip-hop songs and a few contemporary songs as well that feature in the film Dope. I want to give a special mention to Dope. It came out uh, actually only last only last Thursday. This is a, a film written and directed by the Nigerian-American filmmaker Rick uh, Famuyiwa. He, he's, he's actually done a number of films before now. He's probably best known for Talk To Me, the 2000 seven biopic about Ralph uh, P.T. Green, which I was a big fan of. Um, Dobie's set in a lower social economic area in southwest Los Angeles. It's known as The Bottom. It's about a guy called Malcolm, teen protagonist. Um... He is a 90s hip-hop geek. The film starts beautifully with this kind of montage of very 90s iconography, and then he's having a conversation with Bitcoin about Bitcoin looking at his iPhone. So he's, he's one of these kids living in the 90s. And look, this film really evokes early Spike Lee films, such as Do the Right Thing and Crooklyn. They even evoke something a bit like Boys in the Hood. 
It's a light-hearted teen comedy that doesn't forget the harsh reality of violence and crime surrounding the lives of these kids in these in these um, very poor poor areas. And look, what I really liked about the film is is the way it balances this incredible energy with the fact that violence is often just around the corner and the film somehow manages to play the uplifting um, especially in the first half this kind of uplifting energy with with some very blunt and harsh and shocking reminders that people get shot for the for the slightest you know randomly you know people are standing in line at a, at, a, at a fast food restaurant and people walking with guns start blazing away and their classmates die the film juggles these moods really really well i love dope i'm on reflection and i haven't got time to go into details now but there's some slightly problematic stuff with with gender unfortunately if it wasn't for that i'll be saying this is one of my films of of the year and it resolves in a way i don't think any white filmmaker could ever resolve a film this this avoids the crime doesn't pay message instead it goes into something a lot more deeper about how crime becomes a way of life for some of these people and often it's the only only way out and that's a real real tragedy so look i endorse dope um, wow, I just heard quest- I have so many questions I want to ask, but we'll probably. What a shame time. I had to speed through it. There's so many good films coming out next week, though. We want to quickly move on. I'm just going to give a shout out to the new Woody Allen film, too, Irrational Man. I liked it. It's Woody Allen back in existential, it's okay to murder people kind of terrain. <laughs> it's not as dark or as funny or as sophisticated as Match Point or Crimes and Misdemeanors, but it's that kind of terrain. Joaquin Phoenix is great. If you're a Woody Allen fan, it's worth seeing. If not, then why are you even contemplating seeing a Woody Allen film. It's got Joaquin Phoenix. Do you want to quickly talk about Iris? Yeah, so this is a documentary, I think it opened last week, documentary about the famous Iris Apfel, who I have to confess I knew very little about her prior to the documentary. This is a fashionista, socialite, um, stylist, interior designer, New York, um, silverhead, I think she's in her 90s. Uh, we've seemed to have a raft of these wonderful documentaries or wonderful subjects within these documentaries based in New York after Bill Cunningham, Elaine Stritch, uh, Rowan Spong's upcoming Winter at Westbeth. You know, I think there's a there's a wonderful uh, cultural mine or cultural sensibility that's being mined here. Look, as for the documentary itself, I think she's a wonderful subject. But this from the directors, the Maisels, who were responsible for Grey Gardens, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago during one of the MIF shows, uh, it feels like it lacks a, a really kind of core structure or, or dramatic momentum, which, you know, the, sub, the great subject will only take you so far. But in saying that, I did enjoy it. Yeah, look, I, I enjoyed this too, but it did feel like the content that may have been better as a, as a short film. I mean, she's interesting, she's delightful, but there's no, yeah, I don't know, there's no real edge to this. And and where Grey Gardens, you had these amazing people who that is let the cameras roll and film, and you could have watched that for five times, it's running time. Iris, I just got a little bit worn out. Oh, look, I think if you're really into fashion this is going to be your kind of film. But as someone who's not really invested in fashion, it didn't quite bridge the gap for me. But but she's a delightful, wonderful woman, and I'm glad I got to meet her. I just could have met her in a third of the running time. Let's have an Avengers-type franchise where all these silver-haired artisans get together and uh, and save New York from itself. Well, you got Bill Cunningham pops up in this one. I he think that's a great idea. We're going to have to get out of here. Um, all the details of the films we have discussed will be on our on the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website. So in the next few hours, I'll do that. Go to rrr.org.au for that. Um, Josh and I are going to be solo in the cave next week. We've got a whole lot of manly films we're going to look at. <laughs> um, actually, we, we've got a range of films that have different 
ways of looking at masculinity. So it's, I oh know, Josh, we'll all we'll sink our teeth into that. We'll, we'll see how we go and try not to be too blokey and horrible. Because goodness knows we're <laughs> shockingly blokey all the time, aren't we? We're out of here. Good night. See you next week. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.